Hey, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. One of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and I regularly do this weekly, more or less podcast, Elder Law Issues, and that's what you're listening to. And Elizabeth, uh, can we talk about a problem that you and I see a lot, which is usually in second marriages or long-time relationships that have not resulted in marriage, it's not the only place it can come up, but one spouse owns or one partner owns a house and wants to make sure that if they die first, the other partner is allowed to live in the home for a period of months or for the rest of their life or some set of, of circumstances. That, that seems pretty easy, right? If, if I want to let my girlfriend slash second wife slash first wife, whatever, live in the house that I own, I can just say that and, and we're done with it. Well, Robert, I would say it's anything but. One of the big questions when we start to talk to people about what they imagine will happen after they die, who may want to remain in a house, people have all these kind of wild and crazy ideas. And oftentimes they don't want to disrupt the person who's been cohabitating with them. But they're also trying to figure out a plan so as not to burden the other beneficiaries of the estate. So sometimes we see people try and cook up their own language with provisions that would allow somebody to stay in the home for a cer certain length of time. There might be very specific payments related to the home, like payments for the HOA or for utilities that somebody may say, well, my estate will pay for that. And we start to talk a little bit about the outcome. What's the, what's the end game here? Is this person who's going to be, who you imagine will want to stay in the home when you've died, is that person going to actually be in the house when you die? Is it is it a child? Is it a friend? Is it a spouse? Is it a partner? You know, the list goes on. So when we start looking at these questions, I think oftentimes the goal from our client standpoint is to keep it simple. But we both know that that's a challenging thing. When you say the, the cost can be paid from my estate, well, that suggests that your estate is going to be kept open as long as your spouse, partner, whatever, stays in the house. And that, in some cases, that might be 10 years. Now, you might say, oh, I only want to let him stay in the house for the six months after I die. And that's one, one kettle of fish. Right. What happens if he shacks up with somebody else in your house? That's right. And if you say, no, he should be able to stay there as long as he wants to, so long as he doesn't get remarried, does that mean he can't have a girlfriend over or boyfriend, I guess we need to say in this modern age? Um, does that mean that he can't get a roommate? Do, do, we, do we need to specify exactly the circumstances in which he can continue, continue to live there and for how long? Uh, and even saying... As long as he lives alone and stays in the house, what happens if he takes a three-month vacation and goes to Bora Bora and is uh, difficult to, to get in contact with? Can whoever's in charge of administering this say, oh, he's left the house, time to liquidate the property and sell the house? And then what about his stuff? You're what forgetting his, his stuff. stuff. Yeah. And, and if you say, uh, okay... He can stay in the house. We're not going to have any rules, so we don't have any of those things. He can stay in the house as long as he wants to until he dies or tells us he has moved out. And he has to pay all of the rent, mortgage. Well, there won't be rent, probably the mortgage, the, the, the uh, property taxes, the upkeep, the maintenance, the utilities. Wait a minute. The house needs a new roof. Who's going to pay for that roof? Are we saying he's going to pay for the roof? And what if he says, 
I don't want to pay for a roof. I don't care if the back bedroom ceiling leaks because it's not my house. I'm not going to care what your kids do uh, after I end up leaving the house, so I'm not going to lay out the cash. How do you make him do all the things he's supposed to do? And what about when it comes time to actually anticipate that person's departure from the home? What if you want to get it on the market quickly? Is that person going to allow the realtor to go in and do a walk around? What about showings? How does all that work? So Robert, I think these are all the kinds of questions that once we start to talk to our clients, things get, they they have a better understanding of the complexities that can occur. One thing that I, I will tell you is, is that I think that for most folks, the idea of creating a right to reside provision comes from a very generous and gracious place. They recognize that all of a sudden having somebody go through a grieving process at the same time they're trying to move out or relocate can be overwhelming. So I I often ask who the person is going to be or the entity that will manage the estate or the trust upon, upon someone's death. Is that person or entity going to be able to get some legal advice and think around the issues a bit? Because what you don't want to have happen is have somebody who does not have a background in administering estates or trusts start to guess about what a right to reside provision means. So we try and use very, very plain language in those provisions, Robert, but the questions, the practical questions of how to work things out, I think that's important to discuss with people, and and oftentimes we see administrators need help with with the answers to those questions. There's also often a built-in conflict if, for instance, you're going to allow your second wife to live in the house that you've lived in together so long as she is able to and wants to. And you've provided in your, in your trust or your will that, uh, that all of the costs will be paid. You're very generous. You really want to make sure that she is not disrupted. Who's going to be the administrator of the estate or the trustee of the trust? Is it your daughter? Because if it is, she's the one who's going to have to hold on to enough money to make sure that the the tax payments get made and the roof repair gets done and the utilities are all paid. And she's going to have to keep this trust going as long as the woman that she never really cared for you marrying in the first place wants to live in the house. And that is a conflict that we see all the time. In fact, this morning I talked to that couple. They're both thankfully still alive and healthy. Um, but uh, but he has a, a house that she has never had any interest in. They've been married for a decade. And she's thinking, you know, he's likely to die before me. And then I'm going to have to rely on the goodwill of his daughter to make all of the payments that need to be made. And the trust can say she has to make the payments. But that's scant comfort for somebody who's not getting the payments made on a, in a timely fashion, who doesn't think the money is being handled in the right way. So that often ends up arguing for an independent trustee as well. Yeah, I think that's true, Robert. And when we look at the right to reside provisions and what, what all else can be related to those, I mentioned a few minutes ago having somebody provide access to a real estate agent or provide access to the home for showings or viewings or whatever. Oftentimes, we often see somebody who who may decide that they want to provide the person residing in the home a right of first refusal or a discount to purchase the property. And then you get into issues with, you know, what is the appraised price? What is the listing price? So this stuff gets complicated. And, And I think 
one one easy option that I encourage people to consider is if what you want to do is you want to give somebody some options, opportunity, and not create a plan that's your plan for them, but actually allow somebody to some space to create a plan for themselves is make a bequest, make a gift, give them some cash. That can make a big difference in the short term if somebody is trying to put down a deposit or um, oftentimes if somebody's trying to put a down payment on a home. And if you're working with a trustee, a personal representative, whoever's administering the estate who's a sensible person and who has some experience, oftentimes in a pretty swift and efficient fashion, somebody can move out of a property and the length of time that they may be in the property, there could be a short-term month-to-month lease. It sounds nuts, but that's actually more often easy to arrange than finding the perfect right to reside provisions. Thinking about making an outright distribution to somebody of some cash and allowing the personal representative or the trustee, giving that person or entity the discretion to develop a plan, I like that option. There are so many issues here and it is so fraught. And so many of our clients think, oh, this is just an easy issue. We just want to make sure that we're both taken care of and that the survivor has a place to live no matter what happens. But, uh, but it's very hard to think through all of the ways that, that things might go awry. And sadly, that's one of the things that we lawyers do well, partly from experience, because we've seen so many cases that ended up in litigation or frustrated intentions or something. So uh, talk to us about what you want to do if you're considering an arrangement whereby the surviving spouse or some other person is allowed to live in the house for an indefinite period of time. I hate to be a downer on all these things. Uh, By the way, uh, speaking of being a downer, one of the very romantic things you can do is enter into a prenuptial agreement with your second spouse to cover some of these things. But then, oh, guess what? Now your estate plan has to copy the provisions from the prenuptial agreement, too. So there's just no easy answer. Well, as the king of no easy answer, this is Robert Fleming. I've been chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We're two of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. The third partner is uh, Rosalind Franklin barking and scratching in the background, wanting to have some say about, uh, about right to reside provisions. Uh, but we're not going to let her in today. We're going to wrap it up and hope you'll join us next week for our next elder law issues. <laughs>